Hello and welcome to Just the Facts. This is your host, Tasha Bryant. I do hope you are doing well. Um, I just wanted to come on and just uh, speak about a couple of things. Um, first, I wanted to give you guys my synopsis on the impeachment trials. Um, basically, what happened is what I thought was going to happen. Um, you have the house impeachment managers who did a phenomenal job of showing, uh, unseen footage of really laying out a immaculate timeline as to what was happening and really utilizing Trump's own words against him, um, to really show how he was completely and totally culpable and responsible for this riotous incitement and filled, uh, insurrectionist coup. Um, it was very clear to anyone who bothered to listen, um, that there was no other, uh, verdict that should have been found other than guilty. Um, unfortunately we are not dealing with people in the Republican party who were looking to convict Trump. We are dealing with people who are white supremacists, who are people who believe in these conspiracy theories or people who are opportunists like Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley. Um, and for Republicans, uh, they really have become the party of white supremacists and conspiracy theorists. Um, they really have become the party for these fringe people, whether they be Ku Klux Klan members or the Proud Boys or these uh, ma militia people. Um, they really have been, become that party. And a lot of it is this impeachment trial goes way beyond uh, the politics of what's happening. Um, this is not a Republican or Democrat situation. This is about, uh, white supremacy, self-preservation and these, uh, Republicans who voted to acquit him, um, were voting to maintain a system of systemic racism and oppression that gives them a uh, advantage in America predicated on the basis of their skin color. And they do not want to let uh, that go. They don't want to let the... Um, they, they don't want to let the advantages go. This is uh, the first time in the history of our country that the presumed ruling class um, has been beaten. Um, and what I mean by that is that we as minorities, you know, women, um, people from the who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, black people, brown people, Hispanic people, Asian people. Um, this is the first time that minorities have gone up against 
white people and we have won. And it is very scary for a lot of these people who view um, minorities having control as a threat to their self-preservation. And in so many instances, um, you know, these white supremacists would rather that um, America burn down than to allow a a fair and equal utopian society to exist, which is very sad. So unfortunately, I was not shocked uh, when Trump was acquitted. Um, I'm very grateful for the Republicans that did, the, the seven of them that did vote um, for him to be con- convicted. Uh, we needed, I believe it was about f- either 14 or 16 Republicans to turn. Um, unfortunately, we were only able to have seven, uh, but that took guts because when uh, you see the cost of that vote, what that might mean uh, for 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 them to put uh, country B for party is amazing. And I'm very grateful that they did that. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, why wouldn't they vote to convict? Um, you know, why don't they want to get rid of Donald Trump? And, you know, this, this was the perfect time. If, as Mitch McConnell said, he wanted to purge the party, this would have been, um, the perfect time, uh, for that to have taken place. Uh, but instead he voted, uh, not to convict him, even though, uh, Mitch McConnell was the obstructionist, uh, when he first incited the, uh, failed coup attempt, uh, the Congress impeached him while he was still in office and the articles of impeachment were given to Mitch McConnell, who was then the majority leader. Um, and he had nine days left in his term. Um, and Mitch McConnell said that they couldn't possibly impeach him, do an impeachment trial in nine days and that they should wait until after the, uh, until after the inauguration. Now, mind you, it only took them seven days to ram through Amy Comey Barrett, uh, to replace, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And a- Amy Comey Barrett is, uh, the farthest thing from Ruth Bader Ginsburg and perhaps, uh, are arguably one of the most, um, underqualified, um, justices to ever grace the court. Um, she was pushed through, through major opposition, not just from, uh, Democrats, but from the nation, uh, when polled, uh, overwhelmingly the electorate felt that the next president should be the one to pick, uh, the justice who would fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Um, and they went against all of that, the Republicans, and Mitch and Mitch McConnell. So if they were able to ram her through in seven days, surely, surely we would have been able to have an impeachment trial in nine. Um, and then of course, when, when, uh, it was time for the impeachment to take place, then they said, well, it's not constitutional. The, the Democrats waited too long to prosecute him because now he's an ex-president. Well, it was actually Mitch McConnell who obstructed 
the impeachment trial and suggested that we do it after. Um, And then, of course, the Democrats were able to masterfully bring uh, a slew of historical and current. um, uh, What am I trying to say? Bring a slew of current uh, and historical um, examples that showed that um, the impeachment of an ex-president was, in fact, constitutional um in every sense of the word um however uh you know that was what republicans were sticking to that it was unconstitutional even though it was proven uh time and time again that it was constitutional so um you know unfortunately this is where we are um what i see is i see that the republican party is very fractured um, I see that they will re- remain so for years and years to come uh, because the electorate that they were so keen on not disrupting and not making angry is the very same electorate um, that has absolutely no interest in voting for anyone that isn't Trump. So the very base that you're trying to electrify and not irritate and not ostracized is the very base that is the most uh, reluctant to vote and the most unreliable. Um, So unfortunately for the Republican Party, Trump is going to cause a rift um, and he's going to end up splitting the Republican ticket down the middle, which inevitably will play out well for the Democrats because if you have a spoiler candidate or a spoiler ticket and inevitably puts the person in office, gives them the advantage uh, that you don't want there. <laughs> so um, it will be beneficial to us. And, you know, for historical context, you can uh, look at plenty examples, I guess, probably the most current example that we have of a spoiler candidate would be Ralph Nader uh, with uh, Al Gore and uh, George Bush. Um, he, Ralph Nader split the uh, liberal democratic vote. And with the votes that he took, there was enough of a deficit that it allowed George Bush to get into office if Ralph Nader hadn't been in the race and did not split the liberal ticket, then Al Gore would have overwhelmingly been able to win that election. Um, But we all know that that did not take place. So spoiler candidates can be very effective um, for, you know, your party, if it's your party, that's not, you know, a part of the, the, the spoilage. Um, so we will definitely see, you know, how things continue to materialize with the, uh, Republican ongoing, uh, civil war. Um, but in, in short, they, um, allowed him to not be convicted. Um, yet again, Donald Trump seems to evade, um, consequences for his, uh, awful, and egregious and treasonous actions against the country um, and against his own government. Um, I, I, I will never understand how people whose lives were directly endangered um, 
by Donald Trump still did not see their way to convict him. Uh, if somebody put me or a family member or someone in danger, um, I would have no problem making sure that they saw justice. But that's just me. In other news, um, this evening we had our first town hall meeting from President uh, Joe Biden. And it was an amazing town hall. Um, what I find so refreshing about President Biden is he is so genuine and he has such genuine care and concern um, for his country. Um, it is so wonderful to have a president that is not bombastic, that is not um, arrogant, that is not ignorant, um, a president that does not talk in circles, a president that answers questions uh, with proper language and grammar and full sentences. It's just um, amazing how much I personally missed having a true statesman in office and actually having a president that really represents the best of what we have to offer in our country, uh, leading our country once again. Um, so I just wanted to cover a, a, a few points that I felt were very, uh, prudent. So, um, one of the big things that a lot of people have been talking about is student loan forgiveness. Um, a lot of, of people, uh, myself included, in order to get through your collegiate experience um, and beyond, had to take out student loans in order to complete one's education. Now, a lot of people um, have stated that you know, the $10,000 that uh, Biden wants to forgive is simply not enough. And they're really pushing for him to forgive $50,000 at at least bare minimum of student loans. Uh, now, if anything that we know about uh, President Biden is he does not mince words um, at all. He's very direct and he shoots, he, he shoots straight, which is something that I personally, um, appreciate. But um, he stated that he would not consider forgiving over $10,000. What he did say is that he wants to open up more programs and more avenues and more fields that will allow you to be able to um, work in underprivileged areas or worked in uh, programs that assist the communities that will allow you to if you work for a certain time, say five, five years, then you'll have a certain amount of loan forgiveness. And also he wants to regulate the, the system so that you don't have outrageous um, interest rates and com compiling interest on top of interest and, you know, selling your, your, your lender to this one and, and that one so that you don't even know where or who or how someone has gotten a hold of your debt. Um, so I did appreciate that. And he also stated that he felt that state schools should be free and uh, that um, junior colleges should be free as 
as well. Um, and he, he stated that he wanted to give, uh, also make, do more programs for HBCUs. If you don't know what those are, those are, uh, historically black colleges and, uh, universities, uh, since those schools tend to not be as well funded as other, um, as, as other schools, um, with their programs, he wants to make, um, make sure that there's more diversity at the HBCUs that will make um, all fields available so that HBCUs can remain competitive um, with state schools and other uh, private schools with the uh, programs and the technologies that they will have available. So even though I wish that he would do more forgiveness, the fact that they are looking to fix the system in and of itself, and the fact that they will make uh, more options available for being able to work in a certain field for a certain amount of time um, so that your loans could be for, forgiven. And also the fact that they're going to actually take into consideration what your actual income is um, so that when you do pay back your loans, um, you're not put in a situation where you know you literally can't live because you're student loan repayment bill is so huge. Um, so I was satisfied with the answer that he, that he gave, uh, pertaining to why he was saying no and what he was saying, um, that he would be willing to, to, to do, to try to fix, um, the, the issue and what alternatives he was offering. Um, he also, uh, something that I really wished his predecessor would have done uh, was to commend was to c- condemn, excuse me, white supremacy, and he did that. He he can he condemned white white supremacy. He also can c- condemned um, the uh, societal systems that we have in place that are. Um, that are built upon systemic racism. Um, and he condemned all of that and simply stated that we needed to take a look at basically how our society is running and what we can do to remove, um, systemic, uh, racism so that we can essentially allow for everyone to have a fair shake at the American dream. Um, so I was very happy to hear him address and condemn white supremacists. Um, another area that he touched on is of course, of course, COVID. Um, so they were really pressing him. Um, Anderson Cooper was to give a definitive on when, um, we could expect an end to COVID. Now, of course, he he stated he doesn't want to overpromise or have a deadline that he may not be able to meet. Because, of course, with a virus, you can't really tell. All you're doing is predicting based on the indicators and the science, right? Um, so what he did say was that, that with the vaccines and with the social distancing and the mask and with the rollouts, uh, that they're putting forward, 
uh, since, you know, unfortunately it had to start from scratch because the prior administration had done absolutely nothing uh, in regards to rolling out the vaccine or really trying to address um, anything with the vaccine. So essentially they started from scratch and taking into consideration that there were so many months, pretty much a year lost um, that, you know, could have been used um, to actually fight this vaccine. I mean, actually fight this uh, virus. He stated that he felt that we may be able to see some semblance of normalcy uh, around Christmas time, which is a pretty good prediction um, that goes in in line with everything that you hear a lot of the top uh, scientists and um, experts stating. Um, He also stated uh, that uh, they're looking at 600 million doses of uh, the COVID vaccines by the end of July. Um, So that'll be really good. And he also addressed the racial disparities and how they're going to start having like mobile vaccine buses that are going to be going into lower in income neighborhoods um, and income and neighborhoods that may have um, challenges and really try to help people who are older who may not have vehicles or, or, or younger people who may not have vehicles who have been, you know, devastated by this pandemic e- economically um, to make sure that everybody who needs the vaccine and everybody who wants the vaccine can get vaccinated um, so that we can start to return back to some semblance of normalcy. And I thought that that was um, really awesome um, because we definitely need uh, to make sure that the vaccine is available to everybody, not just those who live in good neighborhoods or not just those who um, are doing well for themselves, but we need to make sure that everybody can get it. And we also, he, he addressed the fact that he understands why certain, uh, communities, especially the uh, black community is very hesitant given the, um, you know, just frankly awful history that America has had, uh, when using, uh, black bodies as guinea pigs for vaccines And he understands why people are very hesitant um, to do so. So I thought that that was very important for him to um, mention mention that. Um, He also addressed uh, the issue of children getting back to to school. There there was a um, a very cute moment where there was a lady there with a question with her, with her, uh, daughter. And I think the little girl was about eight years old and she's very concerned that she may be sick with the vaccine. And I mean, that she may be sick with the virus and she wanted to know when she may be able to get the vaccine. And he was just addressed her so cutely and just talked to her. I mean, it it, it was as if he was talking to his own granddaughter and he assured her that, you know, children do not get the virus at the same rates that we see adults getting them. And when they do get it, they don't tend to get as sick. 
Um, and he stated, he just, you know, told her that they haven't even started testing it on children as, as of yet, but he assured her not to be worried about it, which I just thought was really important because there are so many children, uh, you know, their whole lives have been disrupted. You know, they don't have their extracurricular activities. They can't go to school and see their friends. They can't have playdates. I mean, they're just everything that they've known in their little existence has been totally shut down. And so I, I thought it was really, really important that he took that time to address her um, and address, you know, all the other children that may have been watching with with their families. Um, but he did state uh that he thinks uh, grades K through eight should be in school uh, five, five days a week by the end of his hundred days. And he also stated um, that uh, additional school, such as summer school, may be necessary because so many children, unfortunately, have fallen behind. And a lot of that is because of the economic disparities when you have uh, children who were either in private schools or in fundamental schools or they're in uh, magnet schools or, you know, any number of charter schools, um, you know, or schools that are in, you know, very good school districts, these schools tend to have more resources available. Um, and unfortunately, when you have schools in uh, neighborhoods that have more challenges, they don't tend to have the funding um, that other schools have. And so it makes it very difficult for these children to have the necessary technology or to have, you know, some of these children don't have Wi-Fi in their homes, right? So that is something that we have to be cognizant of that, you know, we have a lot of children who unfortunately have fallen behind. So summer school may be something that we will need to look into just so that we don't lose a generation educationally because of this pandemic. Um, I don't know that I necessarily agree that it's time for schools to open up quite yet. Um, I think that the vaccine needs to be distributed more. Um, and uh, I, I think that definitely educators need to be priority, you know, teachers, janitors, teachers, assistants, principals, you know, all these people who interact with children daily, you know, they're, 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 they're tutors and they're reading instructors and coaches and everybody, they, they should have priority if we're going to try to push, um, opening school within his first hundred days. It's a very ambitious, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a very, it's a very ambitious goal. Um, but I don't quite know if, um, it's a goal that's necessarily attainable, but we shall see as we continue to move, uh, forward. But ultimately, um, I think his, his, his town hall was very, uh, well thought out. It went seamless. Um, he really spoke to the needs and concerns of people. Um, he, he made sure to push that he's fully behind the COVID, uh, relief plan, the 1.9 trillion. Um, he is in favor of that and he feels that that is an appropriate amount of money. And he feels that based on all of the leading strategists and economists, 
Um, it is what needs to happen in order to offset um, where we are uh, in our downward spiral so that we can get to an economic recovery. Um, I feel very comfortable and confident with his COVID uh, relief plan because after all, uh, when he and Barack Obama took office and he was vice president, it was he who got us out of the Great Recession. Um, so I don't think that there is anyone more capable to handle this immense task than President Biden. So I thank you for tuning in to Just the Facts. You guys have a good evening and I will talk with you guys soon. And this is your host. Tasha Bryant.